listening to Finding Your Genius Zone with Dirk Nouvelle. It's not just a job. It's not just a paycheck. Or at least it doesn't have to be. With the help of experts across industries, Dirk helps you find your passion and career, as well as exposing the unknown parts of every vocation. Let's go deep. Let's find your genius zone right now. Here's Dirk Nivelle. Hey everybody, this is Dirk. Welcome to the podcast. On with me today is a friend of mine, Josh Henredick. And just a little backdrop before I flip it back to Josh is I've gotten to know him. Um, we live in the same area. Our kids are close in age. And he's just one of those guys that, you know, every once in a while you meet somebody who stands out and, I, he, you know, I know, he's super humble, so you don't have to say anything. But I, I've really gotten to enjoy my time with him. And I've watched his career from afar. And there's a lot I don't know, but I know that he does some really extraordinary things. And I know he's really good at what he does. And in addition, I just, he's an amazing father, husband. He's really involved with his kid's life. And so for me, when I look at people that I really want to be around, and Josh is that kind of guy, and I was lucky enough to have him come on. And he's, I haven't had any guests uh, in his niche yet. So I'm really excited to kind of get into it. Uh, I'm learning, so I'm certainly not an expert at what he does. So why don't I throw it back at you, Josh, and I'll let you kind of, in your own words, elaborate, articulate what it is you do. Well, awesome, Dirk. First, let me just thanks for for hosting me and thanks for the friendship. Uh, the feeling is definitely mutual uh, in terms of, you know, the time we've spent together on the sidelines uh, and even around a fire pit uh, catching up. Um, it's it's always helpful to understand different people's views, ideas and perspectives in the world, uh, which I think is is a theme that hopefully I'll weave into um, my career um, to the extent that that's interesting for folks. Um, so yeah, my name is Josh Henredig. Um, I live just up the road from Dirk here in the Pacific Northwest and just outside of, uh, well, in Snoqualmie, Washington. And I am a managing director um, of climate intelligence at a nonprofit um, think and do tank called RMI, which stands for Rocky Mountain Institute. Um, I am in the sustainability and energy space, uh, and I guess somehow I've spent over two decades uh, in this space uh, with a first part of my career largely at Microsoft, where I spent uh, almost 18 years helping build from the ground floor uh, their environmental and sustainability strategy. Uh, we can talk about some of what that was about. Um, I spent time building an early stage company focused on technology solutions for making uh, products more sustainable, products like the ones you're wearing, that you and I are wearing, um, you know, apparel, t-shirts, uh, and other products in the outdoor industry. Um, and now I'm at a nonprofit where I continue to try to hone my skill at, uh, at maximizing my impact and, and addressing this kind of broader issue of, of climate, uh, climate change. So... That's Thank you. Thank you. So I know we can look it up and we can understand what that those words mean, but maybe, you know, get in ahead of someone coming out of school that has a, a drive to make a change and impact and they're really into the environment or whatever. Can you kind of like in, in simple terms, simple language, articulate sustainability? What does that really mean? I mean, 
you kind of talked a little bit about it, but from an RMI standpoint of your company, like what are some of the things that you're trying to do on a global level that, you know, it might connect the dots a little bit for people to understand what you're doing? Yeah, I guess that's a good question. And and please challenge me if I'm using language or words. You know, when we spend so much time in these work environments and insulated um, circles, it's easy to become fascinated with our own words. <laughs> no doubt I have some of that habit here. But, you know, simply put, you know, sustainability is really about how we maintain certain things at a certain rate or level. And, and ideally, those rates or levels are within a defined parameter. And so what are we talking about here? We're talking about, let's talk about our economy for a moment and the way in which we generate value through by, you know, producing goods and services um, that people can purchase. Well, many of those goods and services are derived from resources, natural resources, things like water, things like wood, things like, um, you know, other other resources that produce energy, you know, uh, fossil fuels. And at the end of the day, we live on a planet with a finite set of resources. There actually is only so much water. There actually is only so much, you know, wood or biodiversity, uh, or as it turns out, fossil fuels. And so the question that I became fascinated with um, early on in my career was just like, how do we operate within the bounds of our limitations and still have a successful, healthy, thriving co economy, community, um, friendships, you know, all the things that we kind of take for granted. Um, I, I became really interested in that. And and one of the very dark rabbit holes that I, I went down is about, about kind of the opportunities to not just understand that problem in all of its complexity, but what can we do about it? And and there, and I found kind of the the promise of, of technology and technology innovation um, in what it could tell us about how to address that problem and how to get more surgical about solutions. So are you, do you tend to, are you more fascinated with the technology or the cause, or is it a 50-50 thing? I can't separate the two. <laughs> so I am, I, I am a, a, a very passionate technologist, um, but I like technology applied to impact. And I like to put that, that, issue of and question of impact um in the center of of kind of how i think about things so yeah yeah no i was just curious i mean it's an interesting marriage of two skill sets uh or two identities that and you seem to have both um i hope i don't mess this up but it, i think we were in bend or gosh i don't know we were somewhere on the sideline of a lacrosse game and and the thing that i loved about Josh, he's like, I've got friends like, you know, why is the sky blue? Or, you know, you have these questions and guys like Josh can answer them. And I was asking, and he can articulate it. I think that's a real skill set, like being able to break it down so your grandma can understand, you know, or your, you know, 10 year old child can understand. And he has a real skill in that. And he was talking about, I said something, I, it was along the lines of, and this isn't really, this is just more of a question that doesn't have to do with your career, but I, I was fascinated by, do we have too many people, you know, like, like 
you know, you always hear, and I've always, I'm a truth seeker. Like I have strong opinions and I'm very okay with being wrong, like about politically or medically or whatever. I, I want to be right, but I want to, you know, I want the, the right, the right answers. But you are talking about like, you said something that actually was the opposite of what I thought is we don't have enough people. Did I hear you correctly? There are lots of views on this, but I might have said that. Yeah. There, Sorry, that. I, don't, I don't mean to get political. I hope I don't get you in trouble. I would just, this was a, so interesting to me because like I was talking to someone the other day and they're like, oh, there's just too many people, not enough resources. And I remember I was like telling my wife, Josh said something like we don't have enough people or something like that. And I, I was just curious what, what that was about. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I think there, I think you would find if you kind of dipped into the interwebs uh, and experts of the world, kind of two different views on this. One view being that, you know, look, we're we're a planet of eight billion people quickly ascending to nine, 10 billion people. How many people can we fit on our planet and how many people can not only fit on our planet, but enjoy a quality of life that we all deem, you know, essential, right? And think about that from your and my position here in North America and Pacific Northwest relative to people in um, the global South and emerging markets. You know, we, whether you're a meat eater or not, you know, like all of these, all of these um, cultural things are, are issues that we afford ourselves and, and other people may want to afford themselves. So the question becomes like, how many how many people can our planet support given the limitations i just talked about in resource availability okay right. we haven't figured out how to produce more water on our planet our planet has largely had the same amount of water for for centuries okay we certainly haven't figured out how to produce more fossil fuels although we've certainly i opened up the the opportunity space for renewable forms of energy right and so there are just differing views on that. Um, and there's also some very um, cautionary tales that we can look back into history and 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 take note of. You know, the the first um, colonies that moved to Easter Island, for example, unintentionally used all of their resources too quickly and 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 ultimately starved and died. And that literally wiped out the entire population on us on that small island. And so it was it was sort of about um, you know these these issues of commons and and how do you protect the commons and preserve the good and how do you sort of make equitable decisions across large populations of people and this gets into issues and in areas that I don't fully understand but I'm I'm more or less highlighting that there there are some differing views um, and a, certainly when you look at the rate of population growth relative to other curtailments like you know China's one child policy and our global pandemics, um, there are people who are concerned we actually don't have enough people to ensure the longevity of our civilization. And so okay. that's that's the way I would just frame it. I, I don't come in on one side or the other um, today um, because I think there's considerations across both sides. Yeah. And I think it's really good for the listeners just to hear you talk like that. I mean, that's that's the flavor of the kind of content or stuff that you might deal with, whether it's, I mean, there's probably a lot of things you're dealing with, but I think it's important like to hear you talk and, and understand what's part of your daily, whatever activities, your, your conversations with your company. Um, let's get into, uh, not, 
maybe the why, but like you've been in this world for a while prior to where you're at now, you were at Microsoft. I've heard of them, big company. Um, what what was the draw? There, there, there seems to be something that kind of brought you into this um, world, this area of expertise. Is there anything you can point to? Because what this podcast is really about a lot of times is trying to help people identify like what's right in front of them. You know, what do they do? You know, what do they naturally gravitate towards? Like even kids who are addicted to their phones, like take a look at what you spend most time, you know, uh, cars, automobiles. I had one guy, his son's fascinated with the roller coasters. And I'm like, there's something there. Like, you know, if you pay attention to where you focus and spend your time, what is it about this sustainability? Like, is there signs back when it was at Whitman? Is that where you went? Yeah. Was there something there, something in high school, like anything that you can look back and say, ah, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. I think there was two things. I think, look, I've also, I've always um, had a lot of took a lot of pleasure and enjoyment in the outdoors. You know, I'm a lifelong skier and runner and mountain biker. And, um, I love water sports and like anything that is outdoors is probably on my list of things I'd like to do, uh, and like to do with people. And so look early on, I knew that I love the outdoors. In fact, I think the earliest job I could remember declaring I wanted was to like work for a company like Patagonia, not because of their environmental credentials, but because I think I thought it would be so fun to go test gear, <laughs> to like go out into nature, put on some stuff, put it to put it up to the challenge and see if it worked. Right. Yeah. Now, that was early days. I ended up going to college. Uh, I was an English major, um, which is interesting, perhaps to come back to. And then out of college, you know, I threw myself into the job market in the Pacific Northwest at a time when like technology, the technology boom was all around me. And, you know, like most kids, I looked around and said, like, I want some of that. And what I was saying I wanted some of is like I wanted to get paid well and I wanted a respectable job. Um, I didn't even know what career I wanted. And so I jumped into technology through the, the window of, of sales which is the, is the first logical transformation I made. Uh, people would be like, how are you in sales at the time? How are you in sales when you were an English major? I guess I would have expected you to be a, an English teacher or a journalist or a X, Y, or Z. And I basically came to the early conclusion that like English is all about selling. <laughs> you're, you're, you synthesize information only to repackage it up and sell your peers or others on an idea. And that was largely what I did as an English major. And now in a sales role, I'm simply listening for what the person or organization wants, repackaging that up into whatever things my company can sell you and delivering you a, a communication about what that is. And that's what I did at a technology firm before Microsoft. And that's what I did when I first entered Microsoft is I was selling, and I was doing pretty well at that. I was making decent money, but I got to a place where I, I didn't want to compete with the millions and millions of other people in a sales function for this increasingly tighter funnel through sales management. Who knows? You want to run a company someday? Like that wasn't inspiring to me. I didn't want to battle it out with millions of people. I wanted to be different, you know, and that's, 
why I started to look at ways in which my skills around communications and even selling could be applied in, in adjacent areas. And I frankly, Dirk, got lucky because corporate sustainability was not a career I could go and learn about in college. It was not a thing. You you looked out into the world and there was very few, if any, people in careers working on working to help organizations become more sustainable. But I arrived at Microsoft and was kind of prevented, presented with this existential crisis that I was like doing work that I didn't feel was super meaningful. I got great money, so I couldn't complain, but I needed to differentiate myself. And so I, I frankly did some, are you familiar with the term like intrapreneurship? No. It's just like entrepreneurship, except you're doing it inside of an organization. And I, I decided I was just going to create a project inside Microsoft um, and see how it goes. And the project I created was to um, was to basically convince these this light bulb manufacturer. At the time, they made CFL light bulbs, which were really efficient. They're like the LEDs of yesteryear. Um, I convinced them to give me, using my sales skills, I convinced them to give me 50,000 light bulbs. And what I promised them is that we, I would do a concentrated energy efficiency campaign within Microsoft. And I used that to then springboard into kind of a grassroots employee engagement style kind of effort around corporate sustainability. And we gave out all the light bulbs, we signed up thousands of people, and we began the early formation of a movement within Microsoft to say like, hey, sustainability is kind of interesting. And it also helps you save some money if you if you use these different light bulbs. Um, and that was the, the seeding for what eventually became a whole job and career set. So at the time I was in a sales role, I did this project, I asked for forgiveness instead of permission. And I got to build my own set of experiences that taught me like, hey, this is kind of a thing. And I could actually lever, lever this up now into perhaps a role. And that's exactly what I did. I convinced at the time the very first um, chief sustainability officer to hire me as his first hire. And guess what? I didn't do that because of the decades of environmental experience I had, because remember, I don't have any. I convinced that person that I was the right person because I understood how to communicate. Fundamentally, convincing an organization to become more sustainable is all about how effective you are at communicating and selling. And that my ability to kind of design and implement these type of programs and projects was much more about kind of the skill set that I had built versus the skill set I didn't have. And for, for whatever reason, they they like that, and I got hired on. I, I've got to ask, because I'm so curious. I've been in technology, big companies before. Were you like selling some totally different product or service, and then you just decided to take a 180? Or were you in a, in a division or group that there was a little crossover? Like, how did you like decide to go from selling paper clips to selling Slurpees? Or, I mean, what, <laughs> what, 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 was, what was the dance there? I mean, was it just a total... What's Josh doing? I mean, how that how that come together? No, I mean, I was selling enterprise Microsoft's enterprise solutions. So, servers, business intelligence, customer relationship management, um office pro, you know, enterprise office products. So, I like the full suite of things, but here was the thing. 
this was the time that solution selling was becoming known and recognized as really a much more effective way to sell com complex things. And all solution selling is, is about like, listen, interpret, and then package up the things that meet those needs, right? That's really what solution selling is about. And I was doing that differently and better than a lot of others at the time who were focused more on a transactional sale. Like, hey, your license it, your license is, is up and needs to be renewed. So pay me some money, right? So that's what I was doing. And frankly, salute that solution selling is just really a framework. It's a set of skills that you can apply to widgets. You can apply to servers. Or guess what? Turns out you can apply it to kind of sustainability at the same time. Okay, that's a great response. So, but it came from somewhere different. Like a lot of sales guys I know, like I battle, I, I have a hard time sometimes in my industry because I'm up against just sales guys selling rates and fees. And sometimes yeah. it's hard to stick out and differentiate yourself. But like your solution selling, the environmental play, the sustainability, it came from somewhere. It wasn't, you know, based off of money or, you know, you know, looking better, but like, where did that come from? Was that just like a deep desire to make an impact and improve the situation? I mean, where, where does that stuff come from? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, it, it came from <clears throat> first a realization that I could carve out a career <clears throat> that might not, that might all, that could all, that could pay me what I needed and connect back to a set of values that for me were important. That was the first time I like it occurred to me, like, holy macro, I can do I could actually have a measurable environmental impact and continue doing and making good money doing that. There was also these sort of existential trends at the time, like lots of corporate pressure for organizations to be more responsible, to do these things. There was new emerging technology that was starting to be introduced. So there was all these like existential trends that were also kind of uh, at least alerting me to opportunity spaces that I was trying to tap into. And so, yeah, it was a combination of things. Like I'm not so altruistic that I don't also want to make money and provide for my family and afford the the, the comforts I've come to enjoy. Um, but at the same time, the more I can hold those two things together and figure out how to both maximize impact, feel good about that and get paid fairly for it, is is kind of what I hold up as kind of my two principles. Yeah, I, I don't know how what the word is, but that's one of the things I just love about you. It's like, you're just so genuine and real, but you know, it's like, I could imagine if you were in a transactional type of sale or solution-based selling a product or service, but you would stand out just because you're doing the right thing. So I see a lot of consistencies. The, you know, so the struggle I have in this podcast sometimes is sometimes, you know, we both have kids close to the same age. Sometimes, you know, my dad was hardcore, like, just get out there, son, and work. It's not supposed to be fun. Go make some money. So I had this definition of success. You know, I just wanted to get out there and make them proud. And, you know, probably deep down, just I wanted to have them love me. You know, so I was thinking, I got to go make a lot of money. And and so for me, my definition of success was based off the dollar. And over the years, like I did okay, but you know, it was kind of an empty feeling. And I'm, my point is I'm trying to expedite the awareness that young adults can take sometimes years and decades to realize. And my question to you is, you know, 
you sometimes you don't know what you don't know. You got to get out there and take action. But I do think there is a, um, I I think there's a, a reality of taking inventory of who you are, what you love to do, what are your um, genuine skills and interests, your values. What advice would you give to somebody that's coming out of school, college, and super smart, super connected? Mom wants them to be a doctor. Dad says she'd be a lawyer. Think they want to work at Amazon because of the RSUs and stock options. But like, they really don't know. Like, what would you say to someone to say, hey, slow down, take a step back, um, you know, to try to get more out of their head, maybe in their heart, and, and try to figure out what it is they should be doing? I'm rambling at this point, but I think you understand. Okay. I'm just basically, what's your advice to someone who's struggling? I would say, first of all, you're not alone, right? I think you and I would both agree, and we probably have a million other friends and, and peers that would, would also agree that you are not alone in the struggle you feel to find your purpose and to find your career. Um, so just take some comfort that it doesn't come organically or naturally to everybody, okay? Um, you'll uh, you'll come across those people that do, and good for good for them. You know they know early, and they they pursue that like a dog. Okay. Um, there's a couple of things that I would just encourage people to consider: is there are lots of ways to knit together a career, and and the emphasis here is on knitting. Okay, because you don't you can build you can build a career in a couple of different ways. Let me give you two just examples. You can identify a sector or a industry that you wanna go very, very deep in, okay? And that could be real estate, it could be banking, could be technology. And believe me that the whole is bottomless and you can learn anything and everything about that career or that industry because that's what really fires you up. And you can just, you know, hopefully grow a career in that way. But there's also this set of horizontal column capabilities that are, immensely valuable that when you apply when you build those skills and apply them to specific industries you all of a sudden become exponentially more important let me give you an example if you become an effective communicator guess what an effective communicator who's well read who writes well uh, maybe had an english degree is now infinitely more useful in a banking job or a technology job or a real estate job you add to that the fact that you now have um, uh, communication with accounting, guess what? An effective communicator who's also good with numbers and now works in the technology industry has like, you're, you're like a triple threat. You have three skills. So the point is here that you don't have, the entry point is up to you. You can enter through the top of the funnel and take an industry view. You can enter through the side of the funnel and build the skills that will allow you to be a more effective force multiplier in the in any industry that you choose. And that is essentially what I pursued, right? I was, like I said, an English major. I built a sales skill. I built some other kind of horizontal stuff. And then I plugged them into an industry and I became somewhat more unique than I would have just hadn't, hadn't not done that. No, I love that. I mean, that's, that's really good information. I, I'm just thinking about like my life and my career. And sometimes you are so focused on a destination that you forget about the process and the, the stuff that you're picking up on along the way. Um, 
The other question that I always like to ask, you know, people want different things out of jobs. Like some people want freedom, flexibility. They want money. They want to make an impact. They want to, um, what are the two or three things that are like non-negotiable for you? Like, what is it? And, and like some of these times, like, like I didn't know at 25 that I thought I wanted to like travel and be international sales business, blah, blah. But then like, I realized like, I don't want to spend a day away from my kids. Like I want to wake up with them. I want to go to bed with them. I want to coach them. And so I wouldn't trade it for $500,000 to miss out on my kids' lives. Uh, I didn't know that at the agents. That's maybe an example. Sometimes you just got to live life to figure out what you want. But what are the non-negotiables for you? What are the non-negotiables? Dirk, that's such a good question. Um, So, yeah, I think, look, I think those non-negotiables evolve and change over time. and, And that's totally okay. Like, the non-negotiable that I probably share with you is that I will always make time for my friend, my family. And, you know, the formidable years of my kids growing up when they were say, you know, three to 13, or, you know, even now they're 18, like being able to coach them and and cheer them and, and be available on the margins of school and during school is, was so important. And having flexibility within your job to do that was so important. Now that wasn't set as, as important when I was say, you know, 19 to 26. And um, I didn't mind spending more time at work or doing different things in the work environment. But I think a few of the things that I would say are non-negotiable for me now is like, I think I, I want to be compensated fairly. So knowing what you're worth is important. Um, and that's probably true at 19. And it's probably still true at, at my ripe old age uh, today. Um, so know what you're worth and 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 make sure you're compensated fairly. Um, I would say the other things are um, established boundaries. Um, your boundaries are different than other people's boundaries. As I just said, you know, my boundaries may mean that I want to be able to spend time at at my my kids' sporting events. Um, and you know, communicate those boundaries to others and and um and make sure that you're respected for those for those boundaries. Um other non-negotiables, I think, are probably for me, like I I get a lot of um I, I get a lot of value and enjoyment out of kind of the the stimulation of other people. So like I like to be challenged. I like to surround myself with people who motivate me, who challenge me, who have diverse views other than mine. And I think that makes me um more effective, smarter. And just a better, I understand the world a little better. And so, you know, I, I look for people that will build build me up versus tear me down. And, you know, having surrounding myself with those type of people, especially in my work environment, is, is really essential. So that's interesting. So you are at, uh, at a nonprofit now, correct? Yeah. And you were at Microsoft for a long time. How long again at Microsoft? Uh, 18 years. Okay. So those, those non-negotiables, I mean, I think it's important for the audience to realize like you can still be in the same gig, you know, or niche or vertical or sustainability, whatever it is, but your life might change based off the nature of the company you're with, like big corporation, nonprofit. So like I had um, a guest on uh, today and last week, they were both in the apparel business 
And they were talking about how different it is. I mean, it's interesting. You said you would love to go out there and test clothes or whatever. That's, that's what they did. They were kind of uh, moguls in the uh, ski wear um, and started a lot of the, the fashion around skiing and snowboarding. Yeah. And they would talk about all the different skill sets that are part of apparel. Yeah. Uh, but if you work for one brand, like a big brand versus a small brand, it was a totally different yeah. experience. Have you felt the experience be different from nonprofit and micro versus Microsoft? Not really. I mean, okay. yes, the some of the language changes, certainly the people change, um, maybe the outcomes change, you know, um, in terms of, you know, whether you're generating value in the form of profits or you're generating value in the form of more renewable energy for people to be able to power their homes. Um, at the end of the day, kind of the, the way in which you work together with people um, to build on ideas and put them out into the world to create value is, is really the same equation. So there's not a lot of difference. The, the thing that is change is different for me now is, you know, I spent a lot of time as what some describe as an individual contributor. This is just like a, 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 a worker in a work environment with a task that delivers on what they said they were going to do. And now I, I manage a, a fairly large team of, you know, 60 people. Um, and, and now much more of the work I do is oriented towards kind of leading others and how to get the best out of others. And in some ways, you know, I've now, I'm now kind of a, I'm trying to become a master mechanic of, of tuning the engine in such a way that delivers maximum results. Um, and hopefully to do that in a way that also builds people up and makes them more at better people and um, with diverse views and uh, and all the things. So the nature of the work certainly changes. And, and that's what I'm kind of enjoying right now in my job at RMI. So if we take like a pie and splice it out a little bit, like, can you give the audience a little idea of like what what's what is it fifty percent of your time on the computer doing Zoom calls, thirty percent out in the field? I mean, tell yeah. us what your tell us what your day looks and as far as time, like does it go into the night, the weekends, or are you pretty much a, a nine to five kind of guy? <laughs> That's a good question. The day in the life of Josh and Reddick. Follow me along as I sit at my desk all day and uh, do Zoom calls. Uh, no. I mean, look, this is the reality is that, you know, our organization is is a hybrid environment of people who both go into the office and people like me. I live in Seattle. My, my organization is based in Boulder, Colorado. There's a handful of people who actually go to the office every day. I, I work from my home um, and yet I am able to maintain connections and relationships with people all around the world. So if I were to give you a sense of what I do on a day, it, it is a lot of meetings. Um, but I, I would say like the thing I enjoy about where I am today is like, I get to work on so many diverse problems from like HR type problems. Like how do we hire and attract people? How do we retain them and compensate them well? And how do we evaluate their performance? So I do a lot of that stuff and then I'll shift gears in the, you know, the next hour, and be talking about how do we communicate this big new idea that we have? How do we reach an audience? What are the marketing tools we have at our disposal? How do we measure our results? And then the next hour, I could be talking about, we have a brand new, incredibly exciting new technology that we want to introduce to the world for how we think we can grow carbon credits 
as a partial climate solution to um, to the world. And so it's a real diverse range of issues that I get to work on, which is why I love it. Um, and it means that I'm talking to people about our intentions, you know, hopefully making some commitments, formalizing those commitments, building out project plans. My organization authors a lot of original thought leadership. So research and reports and analytics, what's the data say? How do we describe the data? So we do a lot of like original thinking. And I try to build space in my day for some of that work myself, you know, so some focused time, which I'm not effing off typically out in the street, um, but I'm using to like think critically and, and write some things down um, and make some commitments. And then I'll just highlight one more thing, Dirk, but like I, you know, last week I spent, I, I brought together a bunch of the people that I depend on to help lead with me under me, like the, the organization. And we spent some time in New York, you know, thinking about how we build a stronger organization and how we make sure we're clear on our strategy and 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 tactics and, and all the things. So there's some kind of team development that I do too. At the end of the day, like I shut off work when I need to shut off work to go get my kids to where they need to be, to watch them do what they're doing, um, make some time for my family and friends. Um, sometimes that means I, I start late, um, maybe at 10 a.m. Uh, it also means sometimes I start early, sometimes at 6 a.m. Um, and maybe I'll sign off at 2 a 2 p.m. or 1 p.m. or noon. I I try to just build that flexibility into my schedule. So for whatever I need to prioritize back to kind of my boundaries, um, I can do it on that particular day. Um, and at the end of the day, I I don't know that I work more or less than anyone else. Um, I work I work hard. Uh, my my goal is to work hard work more efficiently not work more. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I've seen, I mean, you have a, I know you, you get out, you have fun, you travel, um, you're really involved with your kids. I know you're big in CrossFit. It's not like you're some dude tied to your desk all day long. I mean, you're out and about. Um, one of the things that's interesting, I haven't had any guests that work for nonprofit. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to maybe touch on the, you know, yeah. there's an assumption that working nonprofit doesn't mean you're working for free, right? And I, and I think that's really an interesting point for people in the audiences to like, if you have a deep desire or a cause that you really are passionate about that might fall into a nonprofit scenario, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to make a good living, correct? Totally. Totally. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I, I get a competitive salary. Um, I get great benefits. I, you know, if you were just looking at my paycheck, it, it'd be hard to distinguish whether I work for a nonprofit or a, a, a private sector company. Um, yeah, I, and, and ultimately, like none of the decisions you make about where you work are are lock in decisions. You know, like at the end of the day, you know, I'm it, I think of this as kind of a multi layer cake, and we're building this layer one layer at the at, yeah, over another. Um, and what I'm getting out of this experience at a nonprofit in, in, uh, organization is not in, not only the the critical thinking and incredible like uh, expert expertise that they have for energy transition and climate related issues. Um, I also get to exercise this this skill around people leadership and and really working and building teams, um, which is super super valuable for me. Will I be here forever? I don't know, but probably not. Um, but it's it's an important stop for me on the way to figure out how do I maximize what 
impact I can have in the world at large. And I think yeah. people and kids should should definitely take stock of, you know, the type of experiences that will give them unique perspectives. You know, I think often new ideas are are the result of who you spend time with and really the quality of information that you get access to. And so if you find that working at a nonprofit gives you exposure to really incredible people and new information, guess what? It probably means you're going to generate even bolder and better ideas and 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 maybe even find what pathways are going to resonate most with you. So not to say anything negative, but like in the sustainability industry or the world that you've been in for so long, is there anything that maybe you're like, hmm, I didn't see this coming. This is not, <laughs> this isn't one of my favorite parts of my job. And I think it's important to paint the good and the bad, right? To totally. people watching this. Um, I mean, I, there's a lot of things about the industry I'm in. I wish somebody would have articulated to me, which, which I might've made a very different decision in your industry. Um, and I know it can depend on the type of institution you're working for, but anything about sustainability in general, you're like, Hmm, not a fan. Um, so here's what's hard. I think, you know, let's be honest, like not everybody is built is, is bought in to the fact that our planet is, ch is, is changing due to climate, the, the, the conditions of our climate. Not every organization is bought in to sustainability as a mechanism to not create, not just create profits and value, but to operate more, more responsibly uh, in, in the world at large. And there is definitely, um, it, it definitely gets old um, having to convince people again and again and again why this is so critical, why this is so important, and why is it's not mutually exclusive from also creating value and making profits. Like these things can be can go hand in hand. I um, love that. Yeah, so that's, that's... That, that definitely gets tiring. Um, and yeah, I don't know. No, that's awesome. You know, and you just made me think of the other thing I I wanted you to talk about. We had a conversation. And again, I'm going to butcher it. So I'm going to do my best okay. to is you talked about that we are so used to being able to live a life without really paying for it. Like, and I don't know what the term was, but like the, the resources that we acquire and, you know, the clothes and buying on Amazon, you know, getting any, it's like, it's almost like they need to change the system to where we're earning it or we're paying for it because we're using so much of the resources because it's just what we become accustomed to. Uh, again, uh, does this ring a bell? Yeah, yeah. Okay, can you articulate it? Because I'm about yeah, to- I will try, Dirk, uh, keep me honest here. Um, so back to the conversation you and I started here at the, at the start of the podcast, um, You know, I was talking about some of the limitations that our resources um, you know, essentially pr provide the world. You know, we we only have so much of X, Y, or Z. Um, and the challenge that we have is just that, you know, we've built this machine, an, inf an infinite machine, and the infinite machine is our economy, right? Like there's a seemingly um, limitless appetite for growing economically and earning money and a living. Um, and it's unchecked by some of the, the real constraints that we have for resources as inputs into that machine. And so those two things are not compatible. We, we just simply can't grow in the same way we have over the last 
several centuries and and expect different results or expect that the resources we use don't run out. And so the, the question of that many sustainability professionals ask is, you know, how do we create more circular systems and harvest more renewable resources that allow us to continue to raise the level of living and grow the economic system, but do so by taking better advantage of, of some of our resources, you know, and this can boil down to something as simple as, you know, when your when your shirt is no longer fits you or has holes and can't be wearable, you know, can we ensure that a hundred percent of of this could get returned and made into new products, right? Same with plastics, same with cement, same with iron and steel and aluminum. Like, so how do we get more circularity out of these assets, which today is unfortunately like we we've built this like linear system and we put all these resources in one end and they spit out into the world in the form of landfill garbage and waste. And there are absolutely known ways and methods for like closing that loop and making things more circular. And, and that's kind of what many sustainability professionals hold up as kind of the holy grail and opportunity space is how do we get these companies to realize that we need to build more circular systems and stop this linear model of producing more waste. And that's where some exciting new innovations are frankly coming from and uh, where organizations have a real opportunity to not just step forward as sustainability leaders, but innovation leaders. I mean, imagine the innovation and access you open up for yourself if you figure out how to not spend so much money on those inputs, because guess what? You can just capture all those outputs as inputs and it becomes a circular system. That's a competitive advantage. It means your cost of goods goes down. It means your, you know, labor potentially goes down. And anyway, it's um, it's an exciting way to kind of frame the opportunities in sustainability. Uh, I've had a couple. Po- Thank you, by the way, that was amazing. Uh, I've had a couple podcasts where I've had experts on AI. Yeah, is AI going to be a big part of what you do in terms of sustain? I mean, I see it maybe replacing jobs. And it's a little scary in a way, if you kind of go down the rabbit hole, what's your take on AI as it pertains to uh, sustainability? Oh, man. How Is much that a big, um, you know, actually, it's your birthday. So I, I don't want to take you longer than, uh, but I mean, is it possible to say it in a sentence or two or a paragraph? Or is it a problem? Or is it something that's no, an option? I, I, look, I, I, I see it now as a very exciting opportunities. Um, you know, just think for a moment about the amazing innovation and breakthrough that AI offers us today, okay? Today, if you wanted to navigate to a new destination, what do you do? You know, you probably hold it, you probably get your phone out, you punch in a zip, uh, a zip code, an address, and boom, you immediately know. And back in the, in the back room, in the engine, if you will, in the interwebs um, are the data, the infrastructure, the algorithms, and the AI working to help you navigate to that end goal. Dirk, your your Amazon and computer systems um, today know more about you um, than ever before, and and now they you know you are getting intelligent suggestions about the deodorant that you just ran out of and now need to replace. Um, you you know when you have a you know shopping item that needs to be re- replenished and it adds it automatically to your shopping cart. So 
all of these in the all of these conveniences are dramatically changing our lives today. And now we the opportunity space is to really tap into that capability and apply it to some of these fundamental issues around climate change. Um, and how do we get these businesses to be more efficient, to be more sustainable? How do we bring more renewable energy to the grid and route that energy in more dynamic ways that create just-in-time energy access and scenarios when we need it? Um, and, and how do we ultimately kind of use these AI tools to quantify and anticipate how products and services get um get you know the, the environmental impact of these products and services can redu get reduced through our global supply chains so i think there's tremendous potential we're just at the brink of kind of tapping into it um but we have all the capabilities it's really not a whole set of new things that we need to create we just need to aim the effort at kind of some core problems um and i think the future can be really exciting See, just listening to you, I think it's our audience. I mean, this is basically what Josh does. These are the things he thinks about. These are the conversations he has with his teammates. I mean, these are the, I don't want to say the problems, but the things he's trying to, you know, um, the solutions he's trying to come up with to make, you know, the world a better place. So I think this is really fascinating because I think people are, I mean, if they're listening to this and they have an interest in environment sustainability, I think you've given them a lot of really good examples of what you do and what the lifestyle is like. I, I like to end it. I usually ask the question and a lot of times it's a typical response, but question one is if you were to go back, you're coming out of Whitman, play the cross and you're knowing what you know now, like, would you have done, I mean, I know that Microsoft gave you a, uh, an experience, even your, I don't even know what you were selling prior to, but that, enabled you to go to Microsoft with a different mindset and then eventually get to where you're at now. But knowing what you know now, uh, would you do it the same or would you cut right to the chase and go right into sustainability or would you do something different? Great question. Um, hard to say I would do anything different. I, I think what I would try to do is probably be less anxious and concerned about finding my way. Um, I think it's perfectly fine to not know what you want to do. And while you figure that out, you should you should experiment. Have a bunch of experiences and figure out maybe what you don't like um, as a way to back into what you do like. And I know at the when I was early in, in my career, I, I felt a lot of anxiety because I, I didn't have that calling in, at a very early age to become a doctor, for example. Um, and I felt like I was getting left behind. And the reality was I wasn't getting left behind. I was still building skills that, guess what, are applicable and show up in my career today. Um, so feel less anxious and realize that there's a lot of ways to build skills and value that can be transferred to virtually any industry in the world. It's never too late. Um, and if you're into sustainability, um, you are at the right time because there is a thriving profession in virtually any company, any industry to to take what we need to understand about the earth, our planet, our climate, and really create more sustainable products and services and business practices. Um, and those are skills that require good communications, better accounting, incredible technologies, uh, and all the things that you might learn in, in college. Um, and so the water's warm, 
and come on in because uh, we'd love to have you. Uh, awesome response. So last question, let's just take sustainability off the table. Yeah. Let's take environment off the table. Let's take technology off the table. Is there a dream job you have? Like maybe you don't even want to admit it to your friends. Like, you know, maybe it's dancing or art or something, but <laughs> is there something like if you could do anything and let's just say money wasn't an issue, what is it that you'd want to do? Can I, can I have two answers? Yep. I'll make them quick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I've recently stumbled into the game of golf. Um, and man, it feels like being a professional golfer is, is seems like a nice gig. Uh, so there's that. And then I guess I would also say, um, you know, my brother, um, my younger brother is a professional filmmaker and, um, I've always thought being in that creative space, um, and telling immersive stories um, with film or camera would be really fun. And so there's there's a part of me that would love to kind of, what is, is it the metaverse? In the, in the metaverse, I would love to, to be a filmmaker. That's, uh, I have a podcast on Monday with a filmmaker, but hey, I would also, if you're, I'd love to interview your brother. I think that would be, uh, you know, there's so many sexy, cool jobs out there, careers, and it's interesting when you get behind the curtains, like there's probably a lot of work that's not so sexy and fun that your brother had to endure to get to where he is. But um, we'd love to maybe interview him. You should. Hey, you should. He has a great story. Uh, happy birthday. Thank you, buddy. Josh is one of the best in shape guys, you know, uh, when he's in the summertime, I do not take my shirt off around <laughs> him or Nubel. But uh, love you, buddy. Um, appreciate your time. This was really helpful. And I think a lot of people are going to benefit from your knowledge. Awesome, Dirk. Thanks for making this opportunity and spending the time. I thought the conversation was really fun and I hope it's valuable for, for anybody. I think it will be. Cool. Hey, thanks, buddy. No worries.